Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is spirit, sex, and marriage. My guest is Megan Rose, who is author of Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Other Worldly Beings. Megan has a doctorate in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies and a master's degree in Religion and Society from the Graduate Theological Union. She is an initiated ceremonial magician, a Shakta Tantric practitioner, and a senior seer in the House of Brie Fairy Seership Institute. She serves as an ordained interfaith minister, psycho-spiritual counselor, and is the executive director of the Entheosis Institute. Megan is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Megan. It's such a joy to be with you today. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with you today, Emmy. Spirit marriage is a term that's probably new to most people. However, in your research, you found that it's practiced across cultures around the world. Yeah, that's true. The first records of it we see in um, ancient Mesopotamia, in the marriage of um, the priests and the priestesses to the goddess Ishtar. That's the first textual evidence of it, I think, and um, my research certainly indicates that it's much older than that. And how has it evolved from, say, paganism or shamanism? Well, both paganism and shamanism include practices of spirit marriage. It's um, found transculturally around the world in, in many um, earth-based uh, spiritual traditions, as well as contemporary spirituality. I mean, if you think of the um, Catholic nuns who marry Jesus when they take <clears throat> their vows and they wear a ring and they're married to the church, and that certainly falls within the purview of a spirit marriage. Yes, I actually worked as a at a convent as a teenager as a nursing assistant, not because I was trying to explore being a, a nun, but it just worked out. And I noticed that some of the sisters wore these wedding rings, and I asked them, you know, you took a you took a vow of celibacy. Why are you wearing a wedding ring? And they said, well, when I die, I get to go and be with my groom, Jesus, which really surprised me. Yeah, exactly. We uh, see that uh, again and again in the monastic traditions um, across the globe, you know, the idea that the divine becomes our beloved and we step into this deep devotional relationship with them um, and in some case bond ourselves to them. I mean, there's other words for spirit marriage. Um, I use marriage because that's sort of the easiest thing that we can grasp when we have a deep bonded devotional commitment to an extraordinary being. But um, there are other terms like indwelling or merging, depending on the cultural context and, um, and the tradition that you're looking at. You yourself uh, state in your book that you are married to a spirit. Could you share a little bit about that journey and how that came about? Yeah. Well, I was raised Pentecostal Christian. So right out of the womb, I was um, steeped in 
the practices of, you know, speaking in tongues and laying on of hands and channeling the Holy Spirit, which, you know, in um, sort of mainstream Christianity is this sort of nebulous character. We don't really know. Some folks think that the Holy Spirit is the divine feminine. Um, I certainly have leaned in that direction throughout my life. And as a child, I found that that energy of being filled with the Holy Spirit put my body into a state of exaltation. Um, There's just this ecstatic, charismatic space where everything was sort of lit on fire inside of me. And so that was a really, uh, a really formative experience growing up that way. And then later on, I would discover that I could experience that same sort of exaltation out in nature. And so I would go out and um, I had this huge oak tree, like a 200, 300 year old oak tree down the street from my house. And I would go out to that tree and climb in its branches and sing to it and have this same um, charismatic experience out in nature. Um, So fast forward, I go to seminary because that I'm fascinated by this somatic experience that I'm having with with, uh, spirit. And I've sort of left the fundamentalist Christian tradition and and sort of meandering around in a kind of interreligious, interfaith territory. And um, I start studying um, in earnest, like embodied spirituality. And um, one of the things that really piqued my interest in seminary was that I discovered um, that little line in the book of Genesis, and and it's also in other textual accounts, um, the Enochian texts specifically, where the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took unto them wives, the sons of God being the angels and the daughters of men being humans. So I thought that was fascinating. And that was sort of percolating in my back burner back there throughout the years. And then in the early 2000s, um, I had gone through a number of years of training as um, a psycho-spiritual practitioner and a holistic healing practitioner. And I began to have these encounters, mostly through dreams, where this spirit would show up. And all of my body would go into that same type of exaltation that I had experienced um, as a child. But it had nothing to do with Christianity, it had nothing to do with religion. And I wasn't even out in nature. Um, I was in, a, in an altered state, in the dream state. And uh, eventually, that spirit beloved asked me to marry it. And I had no clue what was going on, other than I remembered that Bible, (laughs) that scripture piece. And so that really set me on this quest to understand, um, because I knew there was at least a historical precedent for it. And I had a suspicion that um, I was probably not the only person that was having this kind of phenomena. And so I began to research it first on my own, and then formally in the form of my PhD dissertation, um, really trying to understand spirit marriage so I could help me understand what what was going on. Yeah, and in your book, you describe other people's stories around being married to a spirit as your co-researchers, and they're just fascinating stories. Could you touch upon one that might help illustrate this a little bit more? Sure. Well, My mentor, Orion Foxwood, was one of the first people I found that um, publicly claimed to be married to an extraordinary being. In his case, it's a fairy being. 
his fairy queen. And, you know, just a quick side note, the fairy people in the British traditional and and Celtic traditions, um, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, England, um, are not like Tinkerbell, right? We're not talking about Disney on a type fairy. We're talking about ancient primordial beings that, according to some of the folklore, came here before the human race and sort of seeded the planet, shaped, they were shaping beings, they helped sort of shape the formation and the evolution of the planet and the evolution of our species. And then at some point, um, if you kind of think um, of J.R.R. Tolkien's elves, um, Tolkien based his story of the elves um, largely on this specific, specific piece of folklore around the fairy people. And so they're these sort of ancient primordial beings. And so Orion is married to one of those beings in a indwelled co-creative relationship where um, the fairy woman, Bree, came to Orion's mentor. So Orion had been in contact with her. He's a British traditional witch and a fairy seer. And so he had been in contact with Bree um, just as sort of of a tutelary and guiding spirit, a spirit of nature, a spirit of these powerful earth forces. And she appeared to Orion's mentor, Dolores Ashcroft Nowishki, who is a major mantle carrier in the occult scene, and um, told Dolores that um, she wanted to marry Orion. And Orion, being a gay man, really had no thought of marrying this very woman, but there it was. And um, and so they were married um, through the folkloric rite, which, uh, again, mi- mirrors our own marriage rituals. Um, and that is true in many different cultures where they uh, take rings and exchange vows and promises are made. And then the indwelling or the, the, um, the marriage happens. Um, so in Orion's case, it was sort of, he, he jokes and sometimes says it was a little bit like a shotgun wedding because I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into. But that's not unprecedented. Actually, in my case, the fairy being came to me and and told me, but then I went through a pretty arduous uh, journey of checks and balances to really test that and make sure that it wasn't just my own wish fulfillment. But in in other cases, in in both this, in Orion's case, and in uh, many of the um, African diaspora traditions, the spirit will go to the uh, spiritual leader and say, "I want to marry so and so," and then the that and that is often because that there is some sort of something that needs to be brought into that community that um, that union will precipitate. What are the benefits of participating in a spirit marriage? Well, folklorically, we uh, learn of essentially the the acceleration of our extrasensory capabilities as humans. So again and again, there are stories of humans marrying a spirit and gaining gifts of healing, prophecy, uh, clear the, all the clear audience, clear sentience, or extrasensory uh, capabilities, and on and on and on. And sometimes wealth and power and stature. If you look at um, the Iros Gamos tradition that shows up in a lot of the um, the Irish tradition, and it also shows up 
um, in the Greek tradition, and there's also evidence of this in India, um, when a human, usually in this case, the, the king or the sovereign of the land, would marry the goddess or marry, um, in the Irish tradition, they would marry the, the sovereign goddess of the land. That brought them into the stature of the high king. It conferred power, it conferred notoriety, land was granted, status was given. And in the case uh, of the Roman first Sabine king, Numa Pompilus, um, his spirit wife, Egeria, literally dictated some of the early Roman law to him and was an intermediary between he and other um, powerful deities. She was sort of his, his um, go-between. So lots of different things can historically have been the case. And I think currently what uh, spirit marriage is giving many people is a sense of um, spiritual sovereignty, as well as um, I think my my research really points to um, evolution of our species, really evolving us as multidimensional beings, as well as stepping us out of this idea that humans are the center of the universe, right? Or humans are the center of the planet. It really encourages us to look at things from much more of an animist lens and understand that we are um, but a mere fractal on the body of Gaia, right? On the body of this living, thriving, beautiful planet that we live on that is full of myriad levels of intelligence and being. And who are the spirits one can marry? I use the term spirit because it's sort of the widest term that encompasses lots of different classifications. And that is anything from deities to, um, as we mentioned, uh, fairy beings or earth spirits. Let's see, there are beloved dead that have been married. There are ancestors and, and on and on and on. The, the potential for this is kind of unlimited. Um, anecdotally, this, I don't talk about this in my book, but anecdotally, we even have, I even have people coming to me saying, yes, I'm actually married to um, otherworldly or off-planet beings. So it's a, a wide term that I think really allows us to get out of this idea that, you know, it's just a god or a goddess that is being wed or contacted. So at this point, people may be thinking, how is this any different than maybe just a fantasy or something that someone has made up? Well, I mean, I think that's sort of the age-old question of religion, right? Are we making up the gods? Are we fantasizing that we're having, you know, answers to prayer or contact with any sort of divine being? And as a religious studies scholar, I really try to tread very lightly on classifying something as made up or fantasy um, just because you haven't heard of it and just because that you aren't currently experiencing it yourself doesn't mean that it's not real and valid. Um, that being said, when people come to me to um, try and understand and unpack these extraordinary experiences that they're having, 
I, the first thing I tell them is, you know, find a mentor, find a person that um, can hold you in this practice and be part of your checks and balances. I think checks and balances are really essential in this process so that you can really ground yourself, right? Um, I talk about my work as normalizing the paranormal. So we want to understand that we have our regular senses, we have our extraordinary senses, and all these extraordinary or paranormal experiences are part of the spectrum of human experience. And they're, they're, they're normal. They're, they're part of what someone could potentially experience when they're surfing in the or swimming in the waters of esoteric spirituality. So having a mentor, having a guide or a few, I mean, in my case, I found a psychotherapist. Um, I had been working with psychotherapists for years and years because I'm a psychologist myself and I strongly believe in that type of work. But I found one who was a practicing, uh, a shamanic practitioner. So she was already sort of well-versed in this type of material. She doesn't necessarily hold a spirit in marriage herself, but she wasn't going to summarily dismiss this as fantasy. She was going to listen to me and, and help me really assess what is what is me Megan bringing to my own you know projection and then what is legitimate contact and then I found spiritual mentors so I found Orion Foxwood and a few other folks that either held spirit marriages or understood the terrain and could really help me validate and ground these experiences. So can anyone wed a spirit or is this something that generally comes to a person as it has with some folks either through dreams or through some type of spiritual leader of a community? It really depends on the tradition that you're working in. I think that we all have the capacity to step into a deeply devoted relationship with a divine being, whether that is sort of seen as an externalized divine being or whether it's your own divine self. You know, we all um, have a divine self that is actionable and a, you know, sometimes they're called our patron deity or the Matet or the Ishta Devi, this the being that we that is our beloved, that we, that we seek to develop a, a deep communion with in our lives. So everyone has that um, ability or that capacity, but it's a little bit like being a virtuoso pianist. Can everyone learn to play chopsticks on the piano? Probably, but is everybody going to be, you know, uh, playing at Carnegie Hall? Probably not. So we have a different maybe capacity when it comes to our spiritual skills, but they can be exercised and they can be honed and crafted. And as far as the marriage, spirit communication is sort of the overarching umbrella of what we're talking about. And within that, there is channeling and mediumship and spirit marriage is sort of further down the line. You know, if you think of it like dating a, a person, you're kind of getting to know them, you're learning their, you know, their mannerisms, their, who they are and what they're like. And then you may not you may not marry that person, you know, you may not decide that they're the, the one you want to stick around with for a while. And then again, you might. And so I um, encourage folks who are having these kinds of experiences to like, don't rush into anything. <laughs> Take your time, get to know them, decide what the parameters of the relationship would be um, if you were to marry them. I mean, in 
my own case, it took me 10 years to really uh, agree to marry because I was very, very determined to really know what I was getting myself into. And that's why I sort of pulled together a team, a support team to really help me assess and then did my research project, which was this dissertation that became my book. And um, it was only after about 10 years of that journey that I finally said yes. Yeah, and in your book, you describe how you were visited by your now spirit spouse and that you even had an experience of them coming to you as a tree, making love to the tree, and then later on, you discovered that this very tree that where you received information about it in your dream was verified later on. Yeah, that's what I find most exciting about a lot of this um, extraordinary contact is I didn't go out and try to research. Um, I researched spirit and marriage, but I with my contact, I really spent a good amount of time letting him teach me about who he was before I, before I rushed out to like put a pin in it. Like this is specifically his cosmology, his origin, all this sort of thing. And one of the really noteworthy Orion calls these our tokens. And these are indications that the spirits give us that they're, you know, quote unquote real, that this is a valid experience. And that was that the dream that you referred to, I had this dream where I was on the side of the tour in Glastonbury, and there was a hawthorn tree there. And I was wrapped myself around the tree and the tree and I were going into this deep unitive experience that was just like, exhilarating and, and part of part of what often happens in my body somatically when I am being contacted by my uh, beloved. And then I, I knew it was an extraordinary dream. I knew it was like one of those kinds of dreams that you really pay attention to. And so um, after I had that dream, I shared it with Orion. And he's like, I know exactly where that tree is. There's a hawthorn tree on the side of Glastonbury Tor. And that is considered to be the traditional entry point into the realm of Gwen Neath, who is my fairy beloved. And I knew about Gwen and um, my beloved had given me the name Gwen before I had that dream. So to ha get the name and then have the dream and then have it confirmed to me was one of those really validating experiences that sometimes we don't get if we just get too into the research of something um, and don't allow the the embodied experience to and the, the numinous aspects of it to, to instruct us as well. You describe yourself as a full tilt, highly sensitive person. Some listening might be thinking, well, maybe she just couldn't handle being married to a human. Well, I was married to a human when uh, all of this began happening. Um, in fact, the spirit marriage arose before I had met my, my former husband, but during the course of the, that you know, 10 to 15 year journey, I met and married someone and we were both students. We are both uh, students and apprentices to Orion Foxwood. And so we studied a lot of this together and we had a very uh, powerful spiritual partnership for years and years. And 
the interesting thing was that when my relationship with Gwen began to like heat up was when I entered into my PhD program to begin studying this formally and, and writing a dissertation about it. And then Gwen began to manifest through to me through um, another person, through a, a, a colleague that was in my PhD program with me. And so that was a whole interesting navigation uh, between my ex-husband and my my now beloved um human beloved who uh, we lived in a sort of a polyamorous triad for a number of years together as we were all sort of working through this. And all three of us are practitioners of fairy seership. And so um, this has been a, the, the, the spiritual tradition that we work within um, in paganism has really held us and enabled us to explore all of this together. And they have their own fairy beloveds that they walk with as well. So it's, you know, in many ways, it's a very a very polyamorous practice, whether the the beloved is physical or non. And many, many of my co-researchers are in um, committed human relationships as well as their spirit marriages. Yeah, with polyamory being committed to a human spouse, and in sometimes some of these people, your co-researchers may identify as a particular gender, and yet their spirit spouse may be a different gender, and then they may also be married to a human person. How does one navigate that? Well, I think that it helps if you understand some of the protocols for successful polyamorous relationships, right? There's a lot of agreement setting. There's a lot of negotiations. There's a lot of um, working on processing feelings of um, compersion and and uh, and it could look a lot of different ways, right? There's no one right and only way that polyamory looks. There's no one right and only way that um, spirit marriage can look. But what I will say is that I think that with a lot of these uh, spiritual beings, you know, they're not bound to form or gender like we are. And they may skew one way or another with their gender expression, we may think of one as a god or a goddess, but they've shown me again and again uh, that gender is just sort of a language that they use to express certain ideas or qualities. And, and Gwen will often show up with, to me, primarily as male, but sometimes as female and sometimes as, as, as non-binary or sometimes not even in a anthropomorphic form like more as an energy or as you said a tree and so i think it's actually a really exciting sort of cusp of sexuality sexuality to be surfing when you understand that you know gender and all of its various expressions and sexual orientation is sort of this spectrum of expression that um, spirits encourage us to play more freely in. And how do you connect with Gwen and your other co-researchers? Can you give us a little window into how you commune with your spirit spouse, how you connect? For many years, Gwen and I just connected in my dreams. I'm a pretty powerful and prolific dreamer. And so I would have dreams and they would 
involve encounters with him. And I knew that these dreams were different than my more like gestalt types of dreams where I was just rehashing, you know, what I had for lunch that day or whatever. And uh, through these extraordinary dreams, you know, in my study as a psychologist, I began to really classify, okay, this is a verifiable contact dream. But over the years, it became really clear to me that I was, it was a little bit like being in a relationship with somebody, but only, only talking to them when they called you, like never reaching back to them. And the dreams actually started lessening and I was like, oh no, what's going on? And I realized that I needed to step up and I needed to step in more and I needed to cultivate the practices and the rituals that would help me reach through to the contact from my end. And so so there are various practices and rituals that I'd learned from both my work as a Shakta Tantric and a ceremonial magician, as well as the fairy stewardship practices that I've honed over the years to help me reach through to that relationship um, ritually. Um, my other co-researchers, it really depended on the tradition that they're in, but some of them, it's mostly in trance or dream state, while others have highly ritualized practices. Um, Madrone, who uh, works uh, in the West African Dagara tradition that comes out of Burkina Faso, she was one of my co-researchers, and she's married to a spirit, Tingan, who is an earth spirit, a masculine earth spirit that typically manifests through trees, trees that are um, activated and um, and set up as a kind of shrine to that spirit. So she has a specific redwood tree that has become a tree shrine to Tingan. And so that's one of the ways that she interacts. She goes to this redwood tree and makes offerings and has a, a daily um, uh, relationship with the Tingan spirit through this redwood tree. But, you know, um, because she's part of a, a community of people that work with Tingan, there are other Tingan um, shrine keepers, and they have a relationship with Tingan through trees that they've set up as shrines as well. So there's a variety of different ways of contact. It sounds like a psychic connection is a big part of it. Sure, psychic or or extraordinary or simply an aptitude for um, spiritual devotion, a spiritual and devotional um, contact. You know, you could look at it through the lens of embodied spirituality where, you know, you are having a somatic response or a somatic um, engagement w with these otherworldly beings, whether that is uh, an angelic being. So some of the other categories could be angels or jinn or fairies or a variety of different beings and and we see transculturally that these beings pop up in the religion and folklore and that folks have had contact and conversation and sometimes uh, physical interactions um, in in the various stories of of this type of contact so being sensitive or asensitive 
whether you're classify yourself as an HSP or not, I think that there are aspects of being highly sensitive that probably everybody who's having spirit marriage type experiences um, would be classified as. I certainly looked through Aaron's research, um, Elaine Aaron, who did the highly sensitive person, and I'm like, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. And I think that uh, many of my co-researchers identify that way as well. It seems that possession may be an element in some spirit marriages. You describe a marriage ceremony where a, a spirit, soon-to-be spirit spouse embodied another human in order for that ceremony to take place. Yes. So that was part of Orion's story as well as um, the Vodou tradition used that as well. And so the idea there is that someone who's already indwelled or someone who's already married to a spirit um, will stand as a proxy for the spirit that is being married. And um, in Orion's case, Dolores, stood as a proxy for Brie and Brie sort of stepped into Dolores with Dolores's permission and she channeled Brie um, for Orion so that the marriage could take place. And that's true in the Vodou tradition, the African diaspora Vodou, both Haitian and New Orleans where that happens. And then in some cases, possession happens like in Kama Devi's story where Kali claimed her and came into her body and said, you're mine now. And Kama was like, well, I didn't invite you in here. And um, I don't really know what to do with this. And Kali was kind of like, deal with it. I'm here now and you're, you're mine. And what, you know, Kama went on to say that 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 relationship had been with her for lifetime after lifetime. And this was simply the first time in this lifetime that it um, re-manifest itself and and she just had to learn how to make room for that powerful of a goddess um, claiming her but the deities can claim us in that way and what I love um, when I was doing my research I interviewed the um, voodoo queen Bloody Mary um, who is a New Orleans voodoo practitioner and she said that possession you know can happen two ways it's uh, an outside being coming or outside entity coming and stepping into us for a while. And in, in their case, you know, in the Vodou tradition, um, within a ritual, within a ceremony, um, they bring through someone channels or brings through that deity um, to bring blessings or, or prophecies or um, divination to the group. And so that's one way. And then when they recede out, they leave like a little spark of themselves. They, you know, leave the the possessee uh, uplifted. But then also possession is something that is already inside of us. This numinous, divine, rarefied part of us um, that's sometimes called the divine self or the true self or the entelechy. It whoo, comes out of us right? And there's this, from the inside out, we become animate, right? With this divine um, intelligence being that we are but a fractal of. Um, so that is also classified as a, as a form of possession as well. And in that case, you know, it may recede back in over time, 
But in a lot of the divine self work and in the um, the work, uh, the the great work of the knowledge and conversation with the holy guardian angel, the ideal is that we bring that out of us, right, more and more and more as our way of being in the world, as a blessing, right, as a as um, understanding the the divine nature that humans, um, each human has the capacity to to be a to be a proxy for. That's a beautiful description of the divine self. So how does one navigate if a spirit comes to them and they're not really sure they want to be indwelled? Well, indwelling is like uh, merging or marriage is something that happens over time. And it is with full consent of the human over time. Now, I know I just shared with you the relationship of Kali and Kama, where it was maybe not entirely consensual at the beginning, but I should caveat that by saying that Kama was on a search for her Ishtadevi. Kama was on a search for her patron deity and the deity that was her, that, that she was meant to have a devotional relationship with. She was just surprised that it was Kali because she would not have picked Kali out of, you know, all the various Hindu deities. And she was at the time working on her PhD in um, North India in women's spirituality and was going to all of these different temples trying to find her Ishta Devi. Her um, Ishta Devi means one's chosen deity, which is kind of the deity that chooses you, but also the deity that you choose. And so she was looking for it. She was, she, you know, she was on the search and on the hunt. It just surprised her the way that it happened. And so in these type of relationships, we we bring things to the table that they don't, right? And they bring things to the table that, that we don't. Like they can do things we can't and we can do things that they can't. And so we should never underestimate our sense of agency and power and and our faculty to push back and set boundaries and say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. This is how it will work for me. This is how it won't work for me. Um, and negotiate, negotiate just like we would with any regular human relationship. There is negotiation, there's boundary setting. So we do that. And if, if a deity or a being, I should say, if a being is being pushy, if they're not taking no for an answer, if they're not respecting our boundaries, then it's probably not a being that we want to be working with. And there are practices and protocols that we can um, undertake to set up better set up a better filter for ourselves so unwanted contact and attention isn't happening so it seems that discernment and desire and uh, negotiating are all aspects of working with the spirit yeah absolutely in fact i call it the three d's i say devotion right we have to really devote ourselves to Either the idea that um, we have a spirit beloved because it's wooing us and we're in that getting to know you wooing dating stage um, or devotion to the great work of embodying our divine self, right? So devotion is kind of paramount. Um, and then discernment, right? Really getting very good at discerning 
what is my voice? Or I should say, you know, I, I am a big fan of Asagioli's psychosynthesis work. So what are all the voices that are in here that are at play at any given moment, uh, including all the voices out there that are like, you know, media and family and culture, right? And then we add in all the voices from the spirit realm, if you're a sensitive and you're working, you know, with extraordinary beings. So we have to get really good at discerning. And discerning voices, discerning touch, discerning visuals, all of these different um, aspects that filter into extraordinary contact. So devotion, discernment, and then discipline. So that's, you know, when I shared my story about having to set up practices and rituals for reaching through, that's the discipline. Like you can't expect to have a relationship with somebody that you never talk to, right? You can't expect to deepen into a loving bonded relationship with someone if you aren't spending time getting to know them and and spending time communicating with them. So that's really where discipline comes in. How much do you feel sexuality plays a role in our spiritual development? Mm, What a great question. Can you unpack sexuality for me a little bit more? Because that's such a big, like I could go into the realm of gender identity, which we talked on. I could talk about erotic, you know, give me, give me a little more. (laughs) In your book, you describe from being a young child that erotic spirituality was a part of who you are and who you were. And so since also in spirit marriage, sexuality can be a component of spirit marriage. I've learned that it's not always the case. And it brought up thoughts of connection, union, bonding, merging. People do have partners with humans. And it seems to be a a significant part of or can be a significant part of our development. Certainly it's a it's a prime, you know, a primal human human urge that we have. So I thought you'd be a good person to ask what role you feel it plays in our spiritual development. Okay, thank you. So spirit, so sexuality, right, is this sort of big umbrella term that can encompass everything from actual sexual copulation, right, to um, eroticism and attraction, to if we move into more of the um, the sacred sexual territory. We understand through the lens of sacred sexuality, eroticism and sexuality as a vitalizing force, um, sometimes called Shakti Kundalini, right? Or Oregon energy or um, ecstasis. You hear me use the word ecstasis a lot. And that is this sense that kind of like in the moment of orgasm, our whole bodies go into exaltation, our whole bodies go into a sense of of quickening or awakening. And sacred sexuality really seeks to, to amplify and use that moment of quickening or awakening, um, not necessarily just in, in, what I will say, like genital contact, um, but in a way that it becomes a portal through which we step into an expanded or an extraordinary or an altered state, right? And so through the lens of spirit sex and spirit lovers, 
And in my personal experience as an erotic mystic, that sense of being filled with the spirit is very sexual. It's very erotic because my whole body goes into exaltation. My whole body goes into this expanded erotic state. Um, and I was experiencing that from a very young age as a child, not really knowing that that's what I was experiencing until I became, you know, sexual later on in life and not really fully understanding what that was until, you know, I had my first orgasm. And I was like, oh, wow, this feels a lot like when I was channeling the Holy Spirit, how interesting that is. So when these spirits and, you know, I want to caveat First, by saying that there are spirits and we, you know, there's folkloric evidence of unwanted sexual contact or unwanted vitalism or eroticism from, from spirits um, in the incubus and succubus category. And we know that happens and that's, that's a sort of a whole different kettle of fish from what we're talking about here, which is the intentional, cultivated, consensual relationship between a human and an extraordinary being. So through that purview, we understand that sort of getting your rocks off isn't necessarily the um, the goal of spirit human eroticism, although it might be a nice side effect. In my particular case, that type of um, spirit human eroticism was actually used as a recalibration and a quickening and an awakening. And as I was referring to earlier, an expansion of consciousness that was kind of like a transmission that was happening. And certainly um, my co-researchers, many of their stories corroborated this. So Caroline Kenner, who I interviewed um, for my my dissertation and and went on record as one of my co-researchers talks about sex with spirits as an empowerment so they're actually um, transmitting this 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 uh, like a like a shakti putt type of transmission between the the extraordinary being in between the human and we know that this can happen um, between humans and humans during sex and and other you know sort of extraordinary spiritual encounters where transmissions happen and and this is a sort of another form of how that kind of quickening or awakening um, can happen and that our body responds to it somatically in this kind of arousal state but it's not just it's typically not just in the genital area it's like full body full body exaltation, full body release, full body orgasm. One doesn't need to be in a spirit marriage to experience that, but you're saying that that is often what can occur in a in a bonded relationship with an otherworldly being. Yeah, I'm saying that that in the purview of spirit sex and spirit marriage, that is um in my research and in my experience that's more often what's going on than just than just sort of what we think of as mundane sexuality. Yeah, and then this would be another level of what some people listening might refer to as a sexual fantasy, but for you and your co-researchers and these practices across the globe are anything but. It's it's very real. Yeah, it's a it's a valid form of erotic spirituality. I mean, think of the story of Saint Teresa of Avila, right? She um, there's this beautiful Bernini statue that 
this marble sculpture that is uh, visually demonstrating what she's describing in her um, autobiography where she talks about making love to this angel and how the angel pierced her and there was this sweetness that ran through her whole body, pierced at her heart, but she felt it full body throughout her system as she was making love to this angel. And you see it, uh, again, St. John of the Cross talks about this kind of sexual encounter with the divine. Um, the Beguin movement in the 12th, 13th century, they have tons of erotic, erotic spiritual um, encounters with Jesus and with the lady love. And um, so it's it's there. Erotic spirituality with the divine is part of a global spiritual phenomena. And yet you are one of the first people to bring it to all of our awarenesses. Why do you think we are just hearing about it now? Well, I like to say it's been hidden in plain sight, right? It's been there. But by and large, really in the latter 20th and, and beginning of the 21st century, have we been in a place, at least here in the West, where we are comfortable more or less, talking about our sexuality openly, expressing it more openly and freely, and um, stepping outside of, you know, with the rise of the, the magical orders and the, um, the pagan traditions, right, of the later 20th century, um, an openness towards non-monotheistic or what I would say is non-mainstream religion being um, something that we are more comfortable embracing and talking about. I mean, remember the the witchcraft, the anti-witchcraft laws in the anti- mediumship and, and channeling laws, the anti-witchcraft laws in the UK and the anti-channeling um, and mediumship laws here in the US, those were only lifted midway through the 20th century. So it wasn't legally safe to talk about any of these things. So it's not that I'm sort of discovering something that, that wasn't there. It's just folks are being more, feeling more free and more open to, um, to talk about it. Certainly the Parliament of World Religions, when they began to acknowledge and accept paganism and earth-based spirituality uh, as, as uh, giving them a seat at the table and a discussion with other more mainstream religions, that's also been a huge boon to um, what some would classify as alternative spiritualities, right? Or what I tend to think of as marginalized or subaltern spiritualities. And spirit marriage is just a subset of those. Although I think I've demonstrated that it's not just in marginalized spirituality that this is happening. I mean, it's happening in Buddhism and Christianity and Islam and Judaism and all of those. My research mostly focused, though, on the, the marginalized traditions. Right. When you read spiritual poetry, literature, going back hundreds and thousands of years, people do talk about these ecstatic states. However, the sexuality, the, gen the genital arousal isn't typically discussed. And do you feel that, that shame has played a role in that? 
uh, or what's contributed to having that sort of be separated out? Well, I think you have to take into consideration that what we receive and what's been handed down to us in recorded history has been highly filtered by the folks that were literate and wealthy and educated and able to record all those things. And then you add another layer of their own um, religious and or cultural agenda. And so many of these practices were still there, but written through the lens of like, I'm thinking of the witchcraft trials in medieval Europe. And these kinds of uh, relationships were classified as congressus cum domane, meaning, and I'm botched the Latin there, I apologize, <laughs> but but basically Congress with demons, right? So anything, if you were having this ecstatic mystical relationship with Jesus, like, or an angel like St. Teresa of Avila, you were probably okay. But if you were having it with any other kind of spirit, you were evil and needed to get burned at the stake. And so we, we have to remember that what we can read and what we have as documentation is highly filtered. There are explicit more explicit, I should say, descriptions of spirit marriage. You just have to dig around for them. And then there's um, also this idea that to survive those levels of persecution, a lot of this material was was encoded in twilight language or or metaphor, like highly metaphorical um, references to this uh, because either, it was a mystery and a, an inner mystery tradition and you didn't talk about it with the uninitiated or they were trying to preserve it against these sort of um, dominating forces that were seeking to eradicate a lot of these practices. Because let's face it, when you step into a deeply unitive bonded relationship with a spirit, you become your own sort of spiritual um, center, your own spiritual authority. You don't need a mediator anymore. And that's very threatening to a lot of mainstream religion. You mentioned Ida Craddock in your book, who said she was married to an angel who helped her with her sexuality. And she went on to write a book, Heavenly Bridegrooms. And that she also seemed to inspire sex magic practices. Could you expound on that a little bit for us? Yeah. Gosh, Ida Craddock, bless her heart. Um, she was actually the first person that I found that had written about this. So, you know, back in the early 2000s when I was starting to have these experiences, the early days sort of of internet web research, I... I searched for spirit marriage because that was the closest thing I could think of to describe what was occurring with me. And I found Ida Craddock um, and her research, Heavenly Bridegrooms, which is a treatise that she wrote in the late 19th century uh, about these encounters. And she had, uh, although she wasn't an academic, she had a really fine scholarly mind and she had done all this research on the tradition of spirit marriage, um, mostly through a Western lens. And 
uh, traced these instances, starting similar to myself with that Genesis account, and um, it, mostly because that she herself was having a, a spirit relationship and spirit marriage with an angel or being that she identified as an angel. And, um, you know, during that time period in the late 19th, early 20th century, a woman who was single and knew about sex was, you know, a harlot. She was, she was suspicious and, you know, invalidated. And so she claimed that she knew about, because she was writing, I should back up and say, she was writing pamphlets for women about women's sexuality. And she was advocating for these gasp, radical ideas that like women should enjoy sex and like women should actually get to choose when they had sex. They shouldn't be forced by their husbands into having sex. So she was writing these lovely pamphlets and mailing them out. And people were like, well, how do you know all this stuff about like how to, you know, and, and and it was a fairly descriptive material, like, you know, about how to move the energy and use the body to move the erotic energy to have an enjoyable sexual experience. And they're like, well, you're not married. So how do you know about this? And she's like, well, I actually have this spirit lover and he's teaching me these things. And so, you know, that caused quite a commotion. And um, and I won't go too much into her story, but it did not end well for her. And so uh, later on in the 20th century, uh, Aleister Crowley and other ceremonial magicians, you know, discovered her work and was like, she really knew what she was talking about. She was onto something. They actually sainted her within the OTO order that Crowley was a part of and, and founded. And um, she became one of the sort of grandmothers of Temporary sex magic practices as they're um, understood and practiced here in the West. And, you know, I dedicated my book to her as a kind of uh, thanking her for the sacrifice that she made. She was persecuted horribly for um, being a sexologist, an early sexologist and women's sexuality pioneer. And so, um, yeah, I have a, a very tender spot in my heart for Ida. There seems to be shame still around sexuality for a lot of people and even even having pleasure, although you mentioned that you're noticing that this is changing. Well, I live in San Francisco, so consider the source, <laughs> right? I mean, we are a little more um, uh, sex positive here in San Francisco and open about our sexuality. But I do think that 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 is a uh, part of the wave that we're riding as spirit workers in the early 20th century is this sort of reclaiming our sexualities, reclaiming our erotic experience, not as something that needs to be hidden or, uh, or shame inducing, but as something that vitalizes us as something that empowers us and, and really 
embracing all of the spectrum of that, you know, um, the, from just the, the fun, playful experience of a sexual encounter to, you know, the erotic mystic who is using their vitalism, using their erotic energy, um, using their orgone energy to, to touch into the divine. And there's a whole spectrum right in, in between of that that I think we get to explore now, and there's much more permission to do so. Can you share a little bit about sex magic, what the purpose is, and how someone can benefit from it? Sex magic often is understood as the practice of um, using that vitalizing or erotic energy to charge a certain thought form or ritual or intention or or magical purpose and so the idea is that you you set an intention before the erotic act whether you're doing it solo or whether you're doing it with another person human person or i would add whether you're doing it with a non-ordinary being and you you set that intention Tension before the, uh, or you you create the ritual. There's various ways of going about it before that you begin that sort of arousal process. And this is also used in some neo tantric practices as well here in the West. So it's not just within sex magic, which is tends to be more of an occultist or Western magic purview. So. In any event, you're setting that intention, you're, you're using the arousal energy to channel, kind of like pouring fuel into the tank of a, of a you know, you've fashioned your vehicle, <laughs> you're pouring the erotic energy into to fuel the tank, and then at the moment of, of climax or at the, the peak of the, the ritual, whatever you've determined that is going to be, um, you're focusing and sending that energy in and charging, essentially you're charging up the, um, the vehicle, the thought form, the ritual, the whatever with that, with that energy. And I could go into some of the more esoteric, um, but that kind of gets us off topic a little bit because that it's there's there's more complexity there but that's sort of the the nuts and bolts of of what sex magic is is doing at least so it's using a very powerful vital life force and channeling it into an intention yeah the at, at its essence that's how i understand it and that's how i've practiced it yeah at the same time, I love all this liberation around sexuality and knowing that it's can be in uh, all sorts of different realms. There are those who feel that sex can be an impediment on a spiritual path or that it, that one can get caught up in too much pleasure. <laughs> what say you about that? <laughs> Well, I think many different paths have different goals in mind. And certainly not all monastics are um, like the Beguines using eroticism to fuel their spirituality. And certainly there are traditions that discourage or actively encourage um, 
celibacy um, or or pretty hardcore non-sexuality or or uh, non-eroticism. It's a different path. It's a different method. There's different goals and there's different purposes, I think. What I'm talking about is radically embodied spirituality where we, you know, uphold the physical and the um, the instrument of our bodies as sacred and holy and vital and worthy of full human experience in this realm, in this lifetime, on this planet, and we're not waiting for some some salvific or some um, event that happens after we've died that is that is going to be our reward. Living in our bodies on this planet at this time is a powerful and tremendous gift that we get to explore in all of our its varied nu- various nuances. Um, and experiences. And um, that is really, I think, at the core of embodied spirituality versus other types of spirituality that tend to be not so much centered in the body. Yeah, it seems that it's also very individual, as you say, as to the the own person's spiritual growth, development, personal development, their karma, as to what they might gravitate toward what might actually assist them versus be uh, hindrances or blocks on the path. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we all come here with different personalities and different, if we want to touch back into the idea of the divine self, you know, we are all um, expressing different flavors and different aspects of our of our divine consciousness to varying, uh, you know, greater or lesser degrees and um, how we go about that and how we cultivate that is really up to the individual, right? There's no one right, true, or only way. And um, there are many, many different religious traditions and many, many different types and forms of spirituality. And one of the gifts of living in the um, the times that we live in is that we can more or less explore that, um, at least here in the West, fairly freely and openly. You mentioned in your book that people can actually have spiritual and sexual encounters with plants, and you describe an experience with, I believe it was, um, was it DMT or? Mm-hmm. 5-MeO DMT. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Sacred plant or entheogenic contact with the other world or with extraordinary states is a time-honored and really ancient practice. We see it probably most readily in the um, Amazonian plant teachers like ayahuasca. But these are traditions that have used plant spirit teachers um, like the ayahuasca brew, um, which is a brew of many different plant spirits um, and plant intelligences to, to accelerate and expand our consciousness. 
And so sometimes when someone is um, working with a plant spirit teacher, that plant spirit teacher, like we've just discussed in other spirit marriage encounters, wants a more deeper bonded commitment with that person and asks to marry them. Um, I give the example of a woman in um, working in an Amazonian plant, an ayahuasca tradition, who was asked to be married by a plant called ajo sacho, which is wild garlic. And that plant, she had been doing a dieta or a diet with that plant for a while. And the plant said, I, I actually want to marry you. I want this to be more of a bonded, committed relationship. And she said, well, why? Why would you want that? And And the plant told her, well, the human body, you know, if you can keep your body clear enough, meaning like no, don't eat a lot of things that sort of toxify your body, your human body is so fun to experience and have an experience through. Um, you can do so many things that I as a plant can't do um, that I would, you know, I would really enjoy having a bonded relationship with you. And I'm sort of paraphrasing what the what the plant spirit said to her. But, you know, again, it goes back to we do things they can't, they do things that we can. And in exchange, the plant became a teacher for her, as many of these plant spirit teachers do, um, and gave her insight into to, you know, a variety of things, going back to the idea of, you know, what's the benefit of having a spirit marriage or these sort of extraordinary capabilities. And, you know, in my own case, it was a little bit different in that the medicine that I worked with really opened up a, 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 a confirming or a validating practice because that I did the medicine journey fairly late into my training as a ceremonial magician. Um, so when that, and, and I did that medicine journey in a hermetically sealed um, Gnostic temple. And so with a, with a bishop um, in the OTO. So with that set and setting and intention, what came through for me in my in my first medicine journey with that was what they called the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, which was really just a confirmation of other contact and other work that I had been doing for years and years leading up until that. It strikes me that a spirit marriage, in many cases, may be more profound than most human marriages. Well, I think they're for different purposes, right? I think that speaking of somebody who, you know, has practiced polyamory, um, I think that it is often unrealistic to expect our human partner to be our be all end all and give us everything <laughs> um, we've ever needed or dreamed of or wanted particularly over a long-term relationship where we grow and change and evolve and our, our needs change. The beauty of a spirit marriage is that those types of devotional relationship with a, with a deity or an elevated being tends to fulfill us in a way that a human partnership can't. But that doesn't preclude having a human partner because there are things that we can do with a human partner, like, you know, go ride bikes in the park and watch a beautiful sunset and make love that we can't do quite the same way with our spirit beloveds. And there's this, as an embodied spiritual 
practitioner, there's this wonderful thing called touch and contact, you know, physical contact that that we need, right? We need the the touch and the care and the loving touch in our lives. And so I think we do well to have both. And whether that means um, we enter into a bonded, wedded relationship with a spirit being or even another human, you know, I think that matters less than that we are stepping boldly into relationship, into relationality, both in the human realms and in the, um, and, and in with the other world. When I was preparing for this interview and talking to you now again, Megan, I thought of the movie City of Angels and what you just said about the touch component. And <laughs> yeah, great movie. Another aspect of spirit marriage, it seems that people can continue their bonds after a person has passed or has died in this lifetime. Yes. So one of the interesting things about spirit marriage here in, um, I'll say the United States, because that's mostly where I've been getting uh, reports of this, are people entering into um, these kinds of marriages or relationships with beloved dead. Now, whether that is an elevated being like a ancestor or a um, uh, someone who was renowned in their life and then um, uh, in the afterlife are in a sort of more elevated space to be able to reach back through to the human or whether it's um, continuing a loving relationship with a, um, a human partner who's crossed over to the other side really just depends on the individual and, and what their experience and what their intention is. I, I didn't really know about this until I interviewed a Vodou practitioner, a Haitian Vodou practitioner, and he's, in addition to being married to um, Haitian Lawa, which is the term for the deities in the Haitian tradition, in the Vodou tradition, he's also married to a beloved dead, the um, documentary filmmaker Maya Darren. And I thought that was fascinating. He did not know her in in life, living, but um, he himself had been a documentary filmmaker. And um, when he was going through his initiations, she showed up and wanted to marry him and help him with his art, help him with his filmmaking. And so, so he had married her as well. So there's an example of him being married to like three different beings, two being a deity and one being a, this beloved dead. Can you share a little bit more about entheosis? Yes. So um, I use the term entheogen. Entheos is in or within, and theos is the divine or, or God. So it's this idea of God within, and an entheogen is an agent that sort of brings out the divine within, right? We talked about possession. There's this way in which there's already this, this key inside of us or this fractal inside of us of the divine that comes out of us. So entheosis is a, is a term that um, we see precedent for it in like the Christian tradition. It's an older term. I'm sort of taking it, claiming, reclaiming it, dusting it off and saying that entheosis is the process um, whether we're using the entheogen or whether we're using other forms of awakening this rarefied divine true self intelligence inside of ourselves 
and and really allowing that to be a guiding principle and a guiding force in our lives. Yeah, beautiful. To connect deep within. And you cite examples in your book of spirits impregnating women. In fact, you mention in Genesis, the book of Enoch, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that babies can even come out of these relationships. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting um it's interesting to dance with that concept, you know, here in the 21st century in our understanding of modern medicine and and um conception and things like that. But if we look at it folklorically, the idea that humans when they interface with extraordinary beings as we talked about are changed and recalibrated and sometimes initiated or activated. The byproduct of those unions can look like a lot of different things. Um, It can look like physical children that, you know, in the folkloric accounts, carried some of those extraordinary capabilities. Um, In the Genesis account, the human women that mated with the angels gave birth to a class of beings called the Nephilim, which were are these beings that worked wonders and also got kind of a bad rap according to the folks that recorded the history and the the tales of the Nephilim. Um, they were seen as problematic at times, um, although not comprehensively. There's also in indicators of them teaching humans in, like in metallurgy and various different things that that helped advance the human species. Um, So we see sort of those, those sort of apocryphal or those early, early religious accounts and in in Christianity, but not Christianity alone. I mean, sort of transculturally, there's, um, there's conversations of extraordinary beings coming and mating with humans and producing these offspring that have hybridic, hybridic qualities and um, sort of step the species forward. But I think, Nowadays, um, although Marguerite Regolioso is doing some fantastic research um, along the lines of vir- virgin birth and virgin birth technologies and sort of reclaiming the virgin birth tra- traditions, what I see um, for contemporary practitioners of spirit marriage and the offspring of that is more along the lines of co creative projects, things that the human and the spirit together are bringing forth that are unique and um, contributing to the planet, right? Contributing to our collective consciousness as, as Gaia. Um, and in my case, the, the, the love child, if you will, um, the, the co-creative project of myself and Gwen, my, my spirit beloved is this research, right? Is is getting this material out into the world so that folks that are having these experiences, like I was having 20 years ago, don't have to go on a wild goose chase like I did, trying to track all this information down, but can have safe, sane, and grounded examples and perspective on this so that, um, so that they can um, step into practices, step into traditions, step into uh, a framework around this that really empowers them. Well, it's a wonderful book. And even Jesus himself was uh, created from a 
being impregnated, <laughs> Mary being impregnated by God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are different um, accounts even of that, you know, in some accounts, uh, a dove came to her in some accounts, it was the angel Gabriel. But it was a supernumerous presence, right, that quickened her womb. And the, again, to your point of why don't we have more explicit you know, it's sort of couched in metaphor, it's couched in um, innuendo. I think that that is a great example of uh, a spirit sexual encounter that that the offspring was an extraordinary being, right? The Christed one, or a Christed one. Right. How can these spiritual practices assist us with homesickness so that we can have unity consciousness. So there's a wonderful story that Madrone, the West African shrine keeper that I was talking about, shared with me about being bicultural and biracial and how growing up, she never felt like she quite fit into her culture that she grew up in, in uh, South America, South Central America, not remembering the exact location right now, but um, that she was always sort of an out outsider because she was a, a mixed race. And then later on as a teenager, when she moved to New Orleans, she still felt that because she had grown up outside of the U.S. Um, for her younger years. And um, so she, you know, had traveled all over the world trying to find home, trying to find where she fit in, trying to find her, her like roots and her, her place on the planet. And when she married Dingan, that marriage gave her a sense of roots. It gave her a sense of belonging. It gave her a sense of um, being part of a relationship that regardless of wherever she lived, she felt like she belonged. And it certainly was facilitated by the fact that she was now wed to this spirit that was manifesting through this giant redwood tree that was near her home. But she said that was the first time that she felt like she was actually in a place of, of belonging. Um, and I think that that is a wonderful story that really exemplifies how we search and we often are searching for completion or the fullness of ourselves, right? There's this wonderful line in the ceremonial um, esoteric traditions that talk about know thyself, right? A lot of our journey in life is trying to know the mystery of our own self. Who are we? Why are we here? What's our purpose? And stepping into these type of spirit and marriage, extraordinary relationships really just clarifies, right? Just puts such a, uh, a clarifying lens on um, who we are, what we're here for, what we're about, and a lot of the concerns that we carry around seem to fall away. Frater Lux, the ceremonial magician that I interviewed, talked about how after he went through the um, the Abramelin ritual, which brought him into um, knowledge and conversation with his holy guardian angel, the the day to day stuff that he was concerned about just wasn't really a factor anymore because he had this 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 powerful connection, this powerful presence in his life that really crystallized everything for him um, and put him on a wholly 
uh, new path than he had um, been walking prior to that. Megan, is there anything else you would like to share? Harkening back to the question you asked me about why are we just hearing about this now, I think that one of the purposes that spirit marriages are wanting to make themselves more publicly known now and perhaps increasing in capacity. Um, I have people that reach out to me from all over the world um, that have found my research and been like, I'm having these experiences. You're the first person that's talking about the, the about this that isn't shaming me or vilifying me or telling me I'm making this up. And so we see that this it, it's a thing, it's happening, right? It's out there. I think that's because that, as we talked about earlier, it is accelerating and awakening our, our capabilities as spirit, spiritual practitioners, as practitioners of contemporary spirituality, to step into much more of a beloved relationship, a loving relationship with, with our planet, with each other, and really inviting our species to look at ourselves as part of, as one integral, but not the only important part of this planet that we're on. Um, and certainly moves us into, you know, out of this sort of like, I think, therefore I am into we are thinking, we are as a collective Gaia consciousness um, that has animate intelligence, right, at various stratas of being, right, from the tiniest little mycelium all the way up to the largest oceanic bodies, right? There is intelligence. It may not look like human intelligence, but it is vast and vital and profound, and we can step into loving, devoted relationship with these intelligences, which I think think does us all brings us all forward right brings um, our entire planet into a higher octave well we definitely all need that now more love more connection more acceptance and understanding megan it has been such a privilege and an honor to speak with you thank you for your very important work research and love and insight you've shared with all of us thank you for being with me thank you so much it's been such an honor and for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.